It is all about going inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sebelair, and I am so excited to be with you to end another week, another great week inside EMS. And Pulsera is the proud sponsor of this episode of the Inside EMS podcast. Learn how you can create a robust community paramedicine program at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. And Kelly Grayson is on special assignment this week. He is on the EMS World Tour, bringing education, bringing fun, trinkets to everybody that he is trying to teach to get to the next level of their EMS education. So I will be driving this show alone today. That's right. You get to listen to me alone, but I have a great guest for you, and I am excited to bring him in, Corey Rickardson. He is the vice president of national accounts for Pulsera, and we are going to talk about the change in EMS, especially after this pandemic. He's got a great handle on what's going on and some great opinions. And Corey, I want to thank you for joining me on the Inside EMS podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. So, yeah, I mean, you heard the buildup, right? We think about everything that's going on and it's happening inside EMS. EMS doesn't have the same look as it did before this pandemic. I think we've learned a lot of things. I think we've experienced a lot of things. Certainly now when we've had our peers pass away because of pandemic, you know, we've got them living in, uh, you know, their cars or they're living in their mobile homes or they're, you know, just not going home for fear of not uh, transmitting this disease. Then we get a little reprieve, right? We seem that things are going to be getting better. And now we're going right back into the same place that we were in before we started. I mean, so from your standpoint, your experience, your expertise in EMS, what do you think the past two years have really done for our career field? Well, it's a boy, if we had a crystal ball back in, in the mid nineties as to what would have taken place. I mean, it would just, it's astonishing. Um, you know, I got into EMS in the mid nineties and, um, you know, in looking back now over the past two years, uh, I'm just seeing, um, a lot of heartache, a lot of challenges, uh, but also I think a lot of um, opportunity uh, being presented. And so we, we have to look through and, and find that silver lining and say, okay, what are the things that we can take away from this to help propel our profession forward? And, uh, you know, we could sit in here and cry over spilled milk and lost revenue and understaffing and all of these different things. But I think we have an opportunity to do business in a different way, in a more responsible way that actually will be better for the public and the, the customers that we serve. You know, one of the things that you brought up, you know, you kind of talked about some of the challenges that we have lost revenue and all those things. And it seems that an EMS, we're always kind of chasing things. Are we really ever ready for the things that are happening around us? But it seems that we attack them as best that we can. And then our resilience our resiliency is really something that really brings us to the forefront of being able to adapt. I mean, so when you think about it from a, from a, you know, that adaptation standpoint, from that res resiliency standpoint, you know, EMS really has a lot of strengths when it comes to dealing with this pandemic, right? So if we think about where we were in the beginning when we started and how we adjusted, what do we need to do now to kind of take the next few months by the horns and really kind of wrestle this thing to the ground from a career field standpoint. Yeah. I mean, the, the opportunities are endless. I think, um, you know, we've always been really good in EMS at 
operating on shoestring budgets and adapting and overcoming. It's what we do. We solve problems each day when we get to a patient's house and we don't have the same resources as a hospital and we have to, you know, make a lemonade out of lemons per se. So, you know, one of the things we have to look at is say, what is our place in the healthcare continuum now? Um, It is very obvious with how saturated the hospitals are and the census that's through the roof. We can't get patients transferred, even for minor things that would normally be a no-brainer. Hey, I've got an appendix that needs to be taken out and I can't do it at this rural hospital. I can't even find a bed uh, to do that. So we're living in a world now where our, uh, you know, our resources are taxed. We have an opportunity to step up at the plate as EMS now and say, we can help. We can help reduce the surge in the first place. We can do the things for some of these patients in an out-of-hospital environment so that we can offer some relief for these nurses and these doctors and all of the staff that are so taxed in the hospital. Can we do things more responsibly for these patients that are calling and entering the healthcare system? Can we meet them earlier and do the right things for them, solve those problems for them? Um, I think in every community that looks a little bit different. Certainly the resources that you have at your disposal um, are vastly different in an urban versus a rural area. However, I think that what you can do is look inside your region and say, what are the problems that need to be solved? Even if that's starting small and just taking baby steps and starting to understand and learn um, how to do it, that can evolve into something pretty special over time. And one of the things you said really kind of brought me to the thought of, you know, how community paramedicine fits into, you know, dealing with this pandemic. And we know that there's a big transition that's going on when it comes to community paramedicine, and you're really kind of making it you know, the forefront of our career field. And, you know, we have to remind people that, uh, you know, the first community paramedicine programs popped up in 2007 and 2008. So this is something that's really not new. Uh, And you kind of touched on this a little bit in your last response, but how can community paramedics or community paramedicine programs, especially the ones that are established, but the ones that haven't been established yet, how can they really kind of, uh, you know, take the step up to say, you know, maybe we need to get into this business now because, I mean, we've proven that community paramedics can really uh, do well in this space. Sure. Yeah. Well, certainly there's, there's a couple of perspectives there. Number one is how do you make money doing it? Um, and that's going to differ uh, vastly in, in the environment that you're in. Uh, but take that aside and say, how can we do for the public what needs to be done? I, I can tell you, I'm sure you were the same way, Chris, but when I was on an ambulance, there were so many patients that I got to and I said, God, they don't need a hospital. They just need this. And if I had that as a resource, um, not only would I get back in service faster um, and I would feel better about my job at the end of the day, but this patient would have better satisfaction as well. Nobody wants to go and sit for hours in an ER in a waiting room uh, to get sutures or to get a prescription for a medication or whatever the case is, um, and then catch some type of infection when they were well when they went in. Um, but, you know, I think that those two things are our priorities. And so if we take the latter and we say, what are some of the problems that we're looking to solve? Well, what about if I have a lower acuity patient? And um, what if I was able to remote in a 
a nurse practitioner or a PA or even an MD so that they could have a telehealth consult with my patient while I'm on scene with them. Would that make a difference um, and help with, you know, uh, secondary triage, uh, being able to potentially remotely prescribe medications or uh, broker a follow-up visit with a GP or a specialist or something like that? Uh, you know, starting at a place like that is pretty simple. Um, and, and that's where finding the right resources in your community where you have a doc or you have an NP or somebody like that that's willing to remotely see a patient in these certain situations where a patient meets inclusion criteria. Or we start even earlier to that. Um, you know, we, this patient enters the healthcare system when they call 911. Well, I've always said UPS doesn't send an 18-wheeler to pick up an envelope, right? I mean, if we know that this is a lower acuity patient, um, there may be situations where we just don't send an ambulance, but we have relative certainty that this patient's stable enough to go ahead and see a doc right now or an MP or even an advanced practice paramedic remotely um, and start to understand their problem so that we can put the right solution with that problem. And so meeting that patient where they enter the healthcare system and allowing these folks to do the right thing for them is an important consideration. Yeah. And I have to agree with you hundred percent. And I like how you said that, that, you know, FedEx isn't sending an 18 wheeler. And uh, certainly we've been, you know, we've been taking the, you know, the most expensive mode of transport, bringing it to the most expensive mode of treatment for long enough. And we've got to be able now to do this. So, you know, in your role, as vice president of national accounts, you have the opportunity to travel around the United States. You have the opportunity to work with different health systems, work with different EMS systems. Can you talk about some of the best practices that you've seen over the past 18 months, two years of what people are really trying to do uh, to uh, first, I want to ask you to deliver the highest quality of patient care possible and then, you know, let's go ahead and transition that to, to keep their employees safe. Sure. Well, I think one of the challenges has, has been in actually uh, putting this into practice has been public perception, right? Um, and now we're in a, in a place where the public is asking for this. I don't want to go to a hospital because I'm nervous that I might catch COVID if I go or, um, you know, things like that, access. So, the appetite is there, I think, from a public standpoint, that they're more accepting of this. And we're actually delivering a service that is is better for that public perception. And so in some of the um, more astute systems that, that I've seen, um, the first thing is they have a program in place to meet the patient upon that initial 911 call. Um, and so they have something in place to secondarily triage and put a team on that to be able to, to further assess the acuity level, what the patient actually needs. Do they need mental health services? Do they need substance abuse services, um, hospice response, um, or do they just need lower acuity at home care? Maybe they need durable medical equipment, right? And so those types of things, and they've got relationships that are built now in their community to be able to um, be a middleman and broker those resources and bring those to the patient. The second thing that they're doing is giving medics uh, uh, some other 
potential avenues to take care of those patients. So once I'm on scene and we're very good at our jobs, right? We get, we see thousands of patients over our career and we walk in and we say, stable, not sick. Do they need a hospital? Yes or no. And if that answer is no, what do they need? And if I've got a backup, I've got uh, a navigator behind me, I, I call this concept like a middleman navigation system. We build these hubs in the cloud through our communications um, platform where a medic is on scene and they say, I need resources. So they start a channel in Pulsera and they say, I'm going to consult in my middleman navigation hub. And that's my problem solver. I've got a team of individuals ready to solve my problem. And they say, what you got? And I say, got somebody that needs at-home oxygen. They're lower acuity. They are COVID positive. They're, you know, these are the things that are going on. And then all of a sudden, an MD remotes in, sees the patient, says, yes, I agree. Um, and also, we should probably throw these medications at them, but let's get some durable medical equipment to their location. Let's get these different things. We're keeping the patient out of the hospital, uh, but we're also delivering care that they would expect if they did go to the emergency room, in a sense, uh, but allowing them then to um, stay at home. The third thing I would say is that they have follow-up um, ability. And so a lot of the, the reason that we were nervous about leaving patients at home previously is, is the risk. And it's a very real possibility. But one of the things that we can do is mitigate that risk by saying we are going to proactively follow up with you. Um, you know, one of the things that we have at Pulsera is called Pulsera Patient. And so it's a very light um, app that the patient puts on their phone. And it allows um, a team to remotely see them through video. And it's, you know, HIPAA, secure, encrypted, et cetera. And so it does allow them to proactively see them um, at the 24-hour mark, the 48-hour mark, whatever that case may be. Um, we even have programs where maybe um, they have substance abuse follow-up. So if somebody's going to get uh, medication for that, then, you know, they... They can follow up with that patient and say, hey, it's time for your, your next dose. Um, do you want me to meet you at the Shell station? Because I know you may not want us to come and give you this in your house, right? So they're just meeting the patients where they are and solving the problems. Um, and, and it takes that out-of-the-box thinking. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And, you know, so uh, I kind of talked about before we went uh, where I said, what are some of the great things that you've seen? How about for safety? Have you noticed any best practices in the safety realm? Well, certainly we've got, you know, um, one of the programs I uh, helped start uh, in the Austin region um, early on during COVID, you know, one of the things that they were doing is um, on certain types of patients, they would add in either command staff or, um, their decontamination units and things like that. So basically they were consulted into the channel with, uh, with the medic and the patient. And, um, then they would respond to the hospital to help, you know, decontaminate the unit whenever they arrived. Um, but one of the other things is, you know, limiting exposure, um, to, you know, you think about from the patient safety standpoint, if they don't have to be around other people that are sick, then obviously they're safer um, in limiting the number of personnel that go to a patient in the first place. That limits the medics exposure as well. And so through connectivity and um, our software, 
then the platform can actually reduce the amount of exposure that either the patient or the clinicians have. But you still are able to remotely examine them and, yep. um, you know, refer them to right treatments, et cetera. Right, right, right. No, I think that's a really great point. Let's go ahead and take a quick break, Corey. When I come back, I want to go ahead and talk about emergency management. And I think that one of the things when we, you know, we think about this from the standpoint of our business, we had COVID, we've got our regular operations that we got to deal with, but emergency management is something that we really have to be able to coordinate when it comes to healthcare facilities, when it comes to other agencies, when it comes to the community. And there's got to be an easy way to do that. But I'm going to let Kelly go ahead and read the show's the mid-show read. So Kelly, go ahead and give it to us. Whether community paramedicine or the routine transport from COVID-19 to STEMI to behavioral health, from the scene of a car crash in your city to a patient's living room in rural Montana, Pulsara connects you in real time with any member of the care team. Pulsara makes communicating across organizations and regions easy for any patient type. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build your team, and communicate in a way that's best for your team and the patient case. For more information, visit pulsara.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. All right. Back with Corey Rickardson, Vice President of National Council Pulsara. You know, so we kind of set it up right before we went to the break. We talked about emergency management. And now when we think about this from the standpoint, one of the things that I th- I think that we're not great at is preparing ourselves for the time frame when we have to be able to be big in emergency management. And uh, let's kind of touch on that a little bit. So from your side, have you noticed any trends in emergency management that are really um, something that we've got to address or something that we've got to look at or something we've got to prepare for? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that what this pandemic has done is certainly highlighted the gaps that we have in the healthcare system as a whole. Uh, you know, one of the things that I see daily is the, I'm going to call it the supply side and then the demand side. So on the supply side, you have a lot of hospitals that have to report because of, you know, federal regulations or local um, regional regulations, their bed capacity, right? Well, those numbers are never right. They're just not. Um, as, as much as they try, the supply side is off. And so uh, at that point, you have a, maybe it's a rural hospital that says, I need to transfer a patient and I'm looking at this capacity management and I see that, you know, your health system is saying that you have five ICU beds available. Yet when I call your transfer center, uh, there are no beds available and and the data was flawed. Um, And then you have a lot of states and regions that are completely in the dark on the demand side as well. How many patients need to get transferred or moved? Um, What is the best way to communicate with because a lot of these patients are not staying within their local areas now. I mean, we've got patients being moved across state lines and not just the next state over, um, you know, 10 states over in order to be able to find a bed. So that movement is, is not a small feat. And it takes all of us kind of rolling our sleeves up and being interconnected in order to solve that problem. So let me bring up an example. When I was deployed out to El Paso, when they had their big surge, uh, the first 48 hours when I got there, there were airplanes coming in to get patients. They were getting the wrong patient, potentially. They were um, taking off, and the patient has an adverse event, and they need to come back and land and uh, take them back to the sending facility because of stability. 
you can imagine how many phone calls that takes in order to orchestrate the event in the first place. You've got a sending hospital, you've got a local regional coordination center, you've got um, transfer centers and receiving hospitals and receiving docs and sending docs. Those are all phone calls. And so when that patient has that adverse event and they have to come back to that first facility, how many phone calls do you think it takes in order to keep everyone with situational awareness abreast of what's going on? Um, 30 plus phone calls is what we were calculating. Uh, once we deployed the solution and we literally had sending hospitals, statewide coordination centers, regional coordination centers, MOCs, you might hear the FEMA term of medical operation coordination cells. When all of those people are on the same communications platform, then literally it's like sending a group text and saying, patients crashing, returning to first facility. Guess who knows immediately? Every single patient that, or every single person that needed to know that has some type of a stake in that patient's care is immediately kept up to speed. So in the emergency management realm, we have a lot of solutions that sat on shelves. I mean, I was deployed to Hurricane Katrina and as a triage officer, how many triage tags do you think I used? Zero, because it wasn't familiar. And we have a lot of things that we purchase and we're expected to use it on the worst day of our life, but it's not familiar to us. So one of the things that we're seeing as a trend is, you know, this concept of systems of care that scale. Use the same thing daily. So I'm going to, in my everyday transmission to you as EMS to hospital, I'm going to use this communications platform, and we're going to build muscle memory, and that's what we're going to use to get familiar with it. And when a patient needs to get transferred, we're going to use that same thing to build that muscle memory so that when we do have a stress event, Every day is disaster day. It's business as normal. There's really no change. It just breathes in and breathes out, and it scales to an EOC at that point, and then it scales back down when the stress event's gone. You know, one of the things that you brought up that I didn't really consider in this whole practice of COVID was in the event of an MCI or in the event of uh, a mass shooting or in the event of, you know, anything that's going to be uh, multi-casualty, there may not be any place for them to go. I mean, because all these hospitals are just crazy with their senses. And, you know, we hear all the time that there are no beds. And you bring up the great point that we may have to send these people out of state. We may have to fly these people. Uh, and certainly we've got to worry about trauma patients. But, you know, we may be sending them within the same state, um, you know, miles and miles away because our local level one trauma center doesn't have the ability to take care of them. Right. No, it's absolutely what's happening. And you hear of it all over the place where, you know, even something that's not major, the patient can't get the right treatment. And so I was just on a call last night um, trying to get a help find placement for a patient. And, you know, it was actually one of the places that I think we, we may have found was in St. Louis, right? And this patient's sitting in Texas. So um, it's the different world that we're living in and interoperability could not be more important right now. And, and clearly what we have sitting on the shelf nationwide is not working. And so there's got to be a different methodology to tackle the problem. I think that's a great way to put it. So let me ask you this question. When we think about, you know, connectivity, because you talked about interoperability and it's, and it's a shame that 20 years after 9-11, we're still having connectivity uh, challenges. We're still having interoperability challenges. When we think about the benefit of uniting the care team and being able to discuss things 
you know, across multi-organizations or multi-platforms. I mean, what are the secrets to ensuring that we can make this happen and we could do it in a way that is really taking care of the sick guy that uh, we have the advocacy for? Yeah. So you think about the way, you know, healthcare is decentralized now and, and, you know, um, being able to connect the right people that have a stake in that patient's care, regardless of whether they're in the same physical brick and mortar facility is of the utmost importance. So, you know, you have a patient that's sitting in a rural hospital and number one, we got to find a place for them. Number two, once we do find a place for them, we've got to keep everyone abreast of the situation and up to speed on, you know, what's this patient's ETA going to be? Has EMS even gone and picked them up or the helicopter or the airplane? Um, and, and what is their status? Those people, those stakeholders are in multiple different places. They're in transfer centers. They're at sending hospitals. They're at receiving hospitals. They have private practices. I'm a pulmonologist. I'm a hospitalist. I Every one of those people needs to be connected. And if you think about how we do business, Chris, if we wanted to broker a um, or coordinate a dinner tonight with five of our friends, we would start a group chat. I mean, it's just what we do. It's everyday life. And it's so familiar. Yet when we get in a healthcare situation, that completely breaks down and we're back to fax phone radio. And we're like, where are we right now? Um, why can't we just, I mean, if I wanted to get a cardiologist and a cath lab together, um, if HIPAA weren't a concern, I would walk in and probably take a selfie with the 12 lead and say, hashtag Widowmaker, hashtag cardiology, and guess who would know immediately? All the people that need to know immediately, but we can't do that because of HIPAA. That's where Pulsera comes in, quite honestly, is that we give you all the tools that you enjoy in everyday life communication, but in a healthcare compliant platform so that we can connect all of those people across organizations and allow them to collaborate. And they can use things like, I'm going to upload an image of this patient's lab values. So this pulmonologist who's a thousand miles away can see those. I'm going to start a live video group call between five clinicians and we're going to all converge on this patient and we're going to take care of them. You know, one of the things in Texas right now that we've seen is that if we cannot move a patient, how can we bring the medicine to them? How can we bring specialists to a rural hospital and help that doctor or that nurse with things like vent settings or, you know, looking at lab values and trying to discern what the best mode of treatment is. And so um, it's thinking about this differently. And the only way you can bring that type of medicine to that patient is to connect those care team members. You know, I think you hit a couple of great points there. And I think that, you know, it makes our job a little bit easier too. And we think about this from the, you know, the transportation officer side, when we've got to be able to figure out resources, or we got to be able to connect people. I think it makes our job easier. So you know, one of the big things, Corey, in EMS certainly is situational awareness. We've got to make sure that we have our hands on everything that's going on around us. And we've got to be able to bring in as many people as we can into this process. You know, it's it's not it's not only healthcare providers that need to be, you know, given information when it's time for them to share, but there may be people of outside EMS, outside of the healthcare realm that need to be kept in the loop as well. I mean, so when we think about that from a situational awareness standpoint, how, how do we address that? Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, a lot of us have heard the terminology of RACI, the responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. And in every situation, there are people that have those roles, right? 
Uh, it's why a carbon copy came to be in emails uh, because I need somebody else to be informed about this. And, but that's not necessarily who I'm directly talking to. So think about a situation where maybe you're giving blood products in the field. And so a, you may need one of your supervisors to be informed about that. You may need the blood bank to be informed about that. So it's almost a way to, to bring the right people into the situation and share potentially sensitive information that you can't do over email. Um, but in the heat of the moment, you simply can bring those parties into the channel for collaboration and they may not actually enter the group chat and, and you know, give any information, but they're informed or consulted in so that they have that situational awareness so that we are holistically treating this patient and all of the different parties are aware of what's going on. I got to tell you, Corey, we've had a great time visiting today and I, I certainly I've learned a lot and hopefully the people out there are, uh, you know, getting value out of your expertise. And if you kind of give people a final thought, what do you leave them with? It's, it's about connecting teams. Uh, I really think that the future of EMS, we have a huge opportunity to rise to the occasion and actually be a hero in this situation and reduce surge and actually do business in a more responsible manner. But you have to have a way to communicate and bring in people across organizations in order to succeed. Very good. I want to thank you for joining us on the Inside EMS podcast and Corey Rickson, Vice President of the Na Vice President of National Council for Pulsera. It was great to have you on the show. Promise you're going to come back again and share some great information with us and the listeners. Yeah, great talking to you, Chris. I appreciate it. And for everybody out there, I want to thank you for joining us on the Inside EMS podcast. And you kind of heard what we think. We want to hear what you think. Go ahead and send us a email at the show at ems1.com and allow us uh, to know what you're thinking and uh, maybe you got some ideas for some future shows you want to be able to join us as well uh, for kelly grayson i'm chris sabalero and we look forward to seeing you guys again next week